Welcome to Worldview, a foreign affairs podcast from the Irish Times. I'm Chris Dooley. Our focus today is a conflict on European soil that has flitted in and out of the world's consciousness over the past seven years. While it may not feature in nightly news bulletins, the war in eastern Ukraine has claimed an estimated 14,000 lives. The latest being a Ukrainian soldier killed in shelling by pro-Russian separatist forces this morning, Thursday. That was the 11th Ukrainian fatality in the last two weeks, making this by far the deadliest period of fighting in many months. A Russian military build-up on Ukraine's border is adding to tensions. Our correspondent, Daniel McLaughlin, has been following this story and he joins me now. Dan, we might start with a quick primer for listeners who haven't had the opportunity to follow this story closely. Who is fighting in eastern Ukraine and what are they fighting about? So if we go back to 2014, the winter and early spring of 2014, there was a revolution in Ukraine which uh, tilted the country towards the west and prompted the country's leader at the time, Viktor Yanukovych, to flee to Moscow. Um, Shortly after that, Russia sent forces into Crimea and annexed the region. And at the same time, in around March, April 2014, what were quite small-scale protests against the uh, the revolution in Ukraine, in eastern Ukraine, in the regions of Lugansk and Donetsk, which border Russia and have always had very close ties with Russia, turned into violent clashes on the streets. Protesters were coming over the border from Russia. Soon, weapons started appear. What started appearing at these protests? Small military units started to form. Paramilitary units started to form. Those groups, those pro-Russian groups who now had weapons and uh, armoured vehicles started appearing on the streets of towns in, in Lugansk and Donetsk regions. They started to seize administrative buildings and they took over a quite significant area in this region, which collectively is called Donbass. There was very intense fighting in summer 2014 and early 2015, after which the situation somewhat stabilised. There have been a series of attempts to, to bring about ceasefires and truces on the ground, all of which over time have broken down and fighting has flared up again. The latest of these truces was introduced back in uh, July last year, and it managed to, again, bring about a much quieter period. There were far fewer casualties, far fewer reports of shelling and sniper fire in the region. But as you mentioned there in the, in the introduction, in the last month or so, we have seen a, a significant in, increase in military activity in and around the Donbass area. The conflict then, Dan, has escalated, as you mentioned there, in, in recent weeks. Um, tell us, then, what is the current state of play? So there are international monitors on the ground from the Organization for Security and Cooperation in Europe, and they've reported in the last couple of weeks an an escalation, which means that rather than having just a handful of incidents, shelling incidents and gunfire incidents over previous weeks and months, we're now seeing hundreds of incidents each day. In the last two weeks or so, the Ukrainian forces have reported 11 soldiers killed. The separatist forces have also reported losses. And perhaps most significantly is that we've seen in the past week or 10 days, a very significant buildup of Russian military forces close to the Ukrainian border. Unverified reports and footage posted to social media appear to show Russian tanks being moved to areas that border Ukraine, including annexed Crimea and territories controlled by Moscow-backed separatists. And this morning we saw satellite photographs published which showed a large staging area has been created around 200 kilometers from the Ukrainian border, close to the Russian city of Voronezh, and there are hundreds of military vehicles there. Russia says it's free to deploy its armed forces on its own territory as it chooses, and said the manoeuvres don't pose a threat to anyone. So that's the point we're at now. President Zelensky 
The Ukrainian president has gone to the front line today to assess the situation, and we will hear more from him through the day, no doubt. We've heard from Ukraine's allies, European countries and the United States, also warning Russia against escalating tension in the region. And they've urged them to calm the situation down and to stop massing troops in areas close to the Ukrainian border. We've also seen Ukrainian troops on the move. They're moving towards the front line, potentially as a response. But the separatist side says that actually it's Ukraine that has started this ex escalation. So accusations of, uh, of stoking tensions are going backwards and forwards between the two sides. And about this Russian military buildup, Dan, that you just described, you say Russia say that it's not intended to pose a threat to anyone. But how are we to interpret this military buildup? Russia seized Ukraine in 2014, as you mentioned already. Could they possibly be planning another incursion or invasion across the Ukrainian border? Well, that's certainly the worst case scenario as Ukraine sees it and Ukraine's allies. And Ukraine says that Russia is very predictable and, and the West was and Ukraine was caught by surprise when Russian troops seized Crimea in early 2014 at least twice over the course of the conflict in Donbass. Regular Russian forces have come over the border in significant numbers and um, changed the course of fighting when it looked like the Ukrainian forces, government forces, were going to gain the upper hand over the separatists. So there is fear from the Ukrainian side of a major escalation, a major incursion from Russia. I think most analysts at the moment consider that to be very unlikely because there would be a huge political price to pay for Russia if they did that. There would also be a significant military price to pay probably as well, because the Ukrainian armed forces are a much tougher prospect than they were back in 2014-15. I think if Russia was to increase its military presence in Donbass in any significant way, it would be potentially by sending in troops into the separatist-controlled areas of Donetsk and Lugansk as peacekeepers. So if there was an escalation on the ground, Russia could say, we, are sent, we, we need to protect the local people, protect Russian speakers, protect something like 400,000 people who now have Russian passports in these separatist-controlled areas of Donetsk and Lugansk, and say we're sending in peacekeepers to calm down the situation, to stabilize the situation. But obviously, once those Russian so-called peacekeepers are on the ground, it would be extremely difficult for Ukraine to remove them. There's no sign of that happening at the moment, but I think that that playing out as a scenario is more likely than a major uh, military incursion by Russia into another part of Ukraine, or indeed a push by the separatists to seize more territory in, in the Donbass region. I think Russia, Dan, has always denied being an actor in this conflict, um, whereas Ukraine says Russia is directly involved, providing active support for the, the pro-Russia separatists who are fighting this war. Where does the balance of evidence here lie? There is overwhelming evidence that, that Russian forces have been directly involved in the fighting over the last seven years. We've seen Russian troops actually posting social media messages from inside Donbass. We've seen lots and lots of video footage and photographs of high-tech Russian military weaponry, weaponry that only that is only in the possession of the Russian armed forces. It wasn't anything that the separatists could have taken from the Ukrainian armed forces when they took over those areas in, in eastern Ukraine. We've seen, even though Russia has done its best to cover this up, we've seen significant numbers of Russian troops being hospitalized, having fought in Ukraine, and also Russian military casualties being buried in secret back home in Russia. 
and their families being told to keep quiet about it, to not speak to any journalists or investigators about this because they would lose the compensation that they're being offered by the Russian authorities. Also, you have to remember that the border between the, the, the separatist controlled areas and Russia is now completely open. It's been open for seven years. The Ukrainian government doesn't control that. And of course, across this border, anything can flow. Weaponry can flow. Um, and when you look at the supplies that the militants have in Donbass, the ammunition never runs out. There's only one, one direction that that ammunition can come from. It comes from Russia. Their fuel never runs out. Their other supplies never run out. Um, and while there is a bit of smuggling across the de facto border between government-controlled territory and separatist-controlled territory, the vast amount of resources, military and otherwise, that the separatists rely on come from Russia. So if the conflict is intensifying then, then as you've explained it is, um, are there any diplomatic efforts taking place to try to uh, bring it to an end? Well, there have certainly been lots of calls from, as I mentioned, from Western capitals to de-escalate. But the negotiations, such as they were between Russia and Ukraine, they have been stalled for uh, many months. Um, the last summit meeting between Russian, Ukrainian, German and French leaders took place back in December 2019. We've seen another blow to potentially the resumption of talks just in the last couple of days, with Ukraine saying that it will no longer send delegates to Minsk, the capital of Belarus, where these talks have so far taken place, because Ukraine no longer sees Belarus as an impartial host for these talks. In recent months, Belarus has been undergoing its own very intense political crisis, and it has drawn closer to Russia in an attempt to quell the opposition movement in Belarus. And so we don't know when talks can physically resume again. We don't know where they will take place, and we certainly have no idea of when they will take place at the moment. The president of Ukraine, Vladimir Zelensky, met the head of NATO, Jens Stoltenberg, this week. What does Ukraine want from NATO? Ukraine would ultimately want membership of NATO. I mean, Ukraine looks around the region and sees that Russia has never invaded a NATO country, even though it's had very rocky relations with, for example, the, the Baltic states, which, which were formerly part of the Soviet Union. The Baltic states have NATO protection and they feel safe from Russian invasion. When you look at, for example, Georgia, a country that, like Ukraine, wanted to move towards the West and wanted to ultimately join NATO, Russia sent troops into Georgia back in 2008 and it still has troops in two separatist-run regions of Georgia. Um, Russia maintains troops in a pro-Russian separatist-controlled region of Moldova, which would also like to move closer to the EU and NATO. And so Ukraine sees that if we really want protection from Russia in the region, if we really want to feel like our security is guaranteed, we need to be at least on a track to joining NATO. And to get onto that track, uh, Zelensky called this week for uh, Ukraine to be offered a package that's known as a, the MAP program. Membership Action Plan. Membership Action Plan, exactly. Which would lay out steps, concrete steps, which Ukraine would have to undertake to ultimately join NATO. Now, this has always been seen as a red flag for Russia. Georgia pushing for a MAP program was seen as one of the potential reasons for Russia sending troops into Georgia back in 2008. So this is, is definitely a red line for Russia. And immediately there was a very aggrieved reaction from Moscow when Zelensky, in his talks from Stoltenberg, called for Ukraine to be put onto this fast track. And just on that question of NATO membership, what then has been the NATO response? Is it prepared to contemplate putting Ukraine um, into this membership action plan program? Not yet, because NATO members are very much aware that this is such a sensitive issue for Russia. 
Um, this would be a, a major move for NATO to take this step. And as a reaction, Russia's showing its displeasure in this, this, this courtship between NATO and Ukraine. It could be seen as one of the reasons for this military buildup close to the Ukrainian border. Russia showing that actually this is our backyard, as Russia sees it. This is our patch. And even though you may be strengthening ties with Ukraine politically and economically, when it comes to serious military steps, Russia is always going to be willing to go further than Ukraine's Western allies are willing to go in the region and, and in eastern Ukraine specifically. Are there similar considerations in play here, Dan, for the EU? Would encouraging Ukraine on a path to EU membership be an equally provocative you know, gesture towards Russia? Um, or are there just other considerations in play, such as Ukraine meeting standards, EU standards and corruption and all of that? Um, it's certainly less sensitive from Moscow's point of view, EU membership. And of course, we should we should say at the, the very start that Ukraine is, is a long, long way from being in any position to start accession talks or anything like that. There are huge reforms that Ukraine needs to make on the political side, on fighting corruption, transparency, modernizing its economy and so on before it can ever really get onto the, pa- the, the, the path towards European Union membership. But there are lots of other considerations for European Union countries when it comes to dealing with Uh, dealing with Russia and when it comes to considering how EU states can balance relations between Ukraine and Russia. Germany, for example, while being a strong supporter of Ukraine, always saying it supports Ukrainian sovereignty and territorial integrity, saying it will never recognize uh, the Russian annexation of Crimea, for example. At the same time, Germany is still going ahead with um, the Nord Stream 2 gas pipeline project, which will bring gas directly from Russia to Germany, bypassing Ukraine, bypassing Eastern Europe, and potentially, as Ukraine and its neighbours sees it, see it, putting them in a very vulnerable position as as regards uh, energy supply. Once Nord Stream Two is complete, Russia could, in theory, turn off the gas taps through Ukraine and through Eastern Europe, and supply one of its major cu- customers, Germany, directly. So Germany is still quite keen to um, draw lines and delineate how how the relationships should play out as regards Russia and Ukraine. For example, when it comes to Nord Stream 2, Germany says, we fully understand Ukraine's security concerns and its energy concerns, but this is a purely uh, commercial project and Germany's determined to go ahead with it and maintain very close ties with Russia as regards commercial interests and energy interests, even when not just Ukraine and Eastern European countries, but America is putting huge, uh, putting huge pressure on Berlin to, to end the project. So there are very complex relations at play. And this current military buildup as we see it and this increase in tension is only complicating the situation and increasing concerns not only on the military front, but also on the political, commercial, energy front in with Ukraine and uh, and its Western European partners. And the US, Dan, is another potential actor in all of this. What level of engagement have we seen from the Biden administration and, and how has it changed from the approach taken by the Trump White House? Well, we've seen um, a, a strong effort by the Biden White House in its, in its first weeks to make contact with Zelensky's administration and to show that it strongly supports Ukraine in its reform program and in facing down this uh, increased aggression from Russia. Several top political and military officials in the United States spoke to their Ukrainian counterparts last week. Biden spoke to Zelensky on Friday and made it clear that 
his administration was going to strongly support Ukraine in its reform process um, and in relations with Russia. We've seen strong support on the military side with American trainers, American military trainers going into Ukraine and, and working with the Ukrainian military over a number of years. We've seen military supplies coming into the Ukrainian side as well. And Ukraine certainly expects all that to continue and even be an, uh, enhanced uh, under the Biden White House. Um, and certainly the mixed messages that Ukraine was getting from the Trump White House, as it saw it, as Trump was pushing for, at times, for a rapprochement with Russia. Uh, Ukraine, of course, got embroiled in the impeachment process against Trump. Um, Ukraine is certainly hoping that relations with Biden will be much more clear, much more straightforward. And that is certainly how um, initial signals from the, the Biden White House suggest things will go so far. Just a quick question, Dan, before we, we wrap up the conversation about President Vladimir Zelensky. People will remember, of course, the very unusual background he had. He, got, he was an, a television actor with no political experience and he got elected on a, a landslide win, promising to root out endemic corruption and change the face of Ukraine, if you like. Um, how is that presidency going now? Well, his ratings have certainly suffered in recent months. I mean, the two key promises that he came in with um, when he was elected a couple of years ago, were to root out corruption, as you say, um, and that means reducing the power of the oligarchs, the powerful businessmen that have great political influence in Ukraine as well, and to try and bring peace to eastern Ukraine. These were his two key promises, and he hasn't made great progress on either of them. I mean, as we've as we've been talking about, we're seeing a new escalation of tension in eastern Ukraine now. And also on the anti-corruption front, he hasn't had any um, any major success. There've been a, it's been a sort of one step forward, a couple of steps back. Some legislation has been put in place which should strengthen anti-corruption measures in Ukraine, but at the same time, he's come under criticism from civil society for weakening uh, other areas of the anti-corruption fight. What we have seen in recent months, and this could again be a response to his falling ratings. We've seen him taking a much tougher stance on uh, pro-Russian media stations, media outlets in Ukraine, particularly ones that are seen as connected with a man called Viktor Medvedchuk. He is uh, probably Vladimir Putin, the Russian president's closest ally in Ukraine. Sanctions were placed on media outlets that are linked to his business empire earlier this year. Uh, sanctions were placed directly on Medvedchuk and member, members of his family and his business associates more recently. Medvedchuk and Moscow say that this is clearly an attempt to uh, suppress alternative political views in Ukraine. But from Zelensky's point of view, when his ratings have been falling, this has played well with the more nationalist element in Ukraine which has always been somewhat sceptical towards him. Many Ukrainians have always felt that he's too willing to make concessions to Russia and to uh, pro-Russian political forces in Ukraine to try and get a settlement in the East. So it seems that in trying to boost his own ratings, strengthen his own domestic political position and appeal to the, to the more right wing in Ukraine, he is taking this tougher line, not only against Russia, but against politicians like Medvedchuk that are seen as having very close ties to Moscow and are seen as pushing a more pro-Kremlin line in uh, Ukrainian politics. Dan, most informative as always. Thanks for that. That's all for this week. For more on this and other international stories, go to irishtimes.com. Thanks for listening. Goodbye for now.